This is the Horse Radio Network. Hello, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin. And I'm Tim Warden. And today we have a fantastic guest covering a topic that impacts every single horse owner. Um, one of the conversations that's coming up more and more, and not just at the high level, it really is impacting every level, is the lack of equine veterinarians uh, in our in our world, in our community. I think probably 10, 15 years ago, it was more of a, there were whispers about this becoming an issue, but it wasn't such a, a well-recognized problem. But I think where we are today, it's getting close to a five alarm fire, fire level. You know, it's really hard to find equine veterinarians. So a lot of practices are struggling to, to hire them. Uh, it's really hard to retain them as well. So even if you can find someone to hire, they likely, or a lot of them do not last more than a couple of years in the role before they transition somewhere else or even transition to small animal. So it's something that uh, for sure needs a solution or multiple solutions. And that's sort of the, the purpose of today's discussion with Dr. Erica Lacker. And this will be the first uh, discussion, and we're hoping to create a little bit of a series uh, looking into this problem a little bit more. So I think there are a lot of different viewpoints to to look at. There's for sure, you know, the equine veterinarians, the veterinary schools, and sort of the admission component, and then as well looking at what uh, the actual horse owners and the riders and, and the community needs from the equine veterinarians. So we're really excited to jump into this uh, important, important topic. So today's guest, as Tim said, is Dr. Erica Latcher. She's a 2001 graduate of the University of Florida's College of Veterinary Medicine and the owner of Spring Hill Equine Veterinary Clinic in Newberry, Florida. In addition to practicing medicine, she's also an author, blogger, and podcaster with the mission of making the world a better place for horses. Her podcast, which I recommend everyone check out, is Straight from the Horse Doctor's Mouth. It's, a popul it's popular among horse owners worldwide. She enjoys competing in show jumping with her horses and spending time outdoors with her husband. Hi, Dr. Latcher, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me there. Awesome. Well, we'll jump right into our conversation today about equine veterinarians or the lack thereof, as we're going to uh, discuss. Um, so... Uh, as an equine veterinarian with a busy practice, I'm curious what sort of workforce trends you're seeing in North America and even globally, um, if that's something that you've been keeping an eye on that uh, are causing concern for you. Equine veterinarians don't exist. We're an endangered species. <laughs> I think we should be on the list. And it's, yeah. it, you know, it's not just equine veterinarians that have become difficult. You know, it, it's, I foster them, you know, I raise them from pre-vet school, I help them get into vet school. You know, I, I have sort of a, a supply chain that I, I try to have available for me, but it's not just the veterinarians. It's also all the people around us too. You know, the, the hard, hard, hardworking technicians, the, the clinic staff that helps us just get it all done. So between all of it, having that workforce available to us to manage everything we do is getting harder and harder. Yeah, for sure. I I listened uh, to your hundredth podcast episode, I believe it was, um, where you get into the nitty gritty of all this. But I'm wondering if you want to share with us a little bit um, of what you discussed in that episode. And I, I highly recommend everyone go check it out. Um, in terms of 
both the the lifestyle and the demands of equine veterinarians that are a little different even from, you know, small animal veterinarians. And also just something that you, you know, bring up that I think is not talked about enough, but that uh, you guys are horse people at, at heart and, and you're human beings and sort of what the demands of the job um, due to those aspects of, of your life and, and your well-being? Well, I think, you know, especially being the Sport Horse podcast, you have a lot of people who listen who are the horse people to their core, you know, and if you're talking about looking at some of the the top people in the industry, those people do horses seven days a week. There's no other way to do it. You know, when you're doing Olympic level, high level stuff, it's it's all the time. And for many of us, we do understand that horses are a seven day a week, you know, they don't care it's Christmas. Heck, I think they prefer it's Christmas when it comes to emergencies, but you know, they, they just, they're all the time and we all know that, but when it's your job, it can be a little excessive (laughs) when somebody thinks of something at three in the morning and I, I get it. They're super concerned about, is that the proper diet for Flicka? And they want to know now, and they text you at three in the morning to ask you because that's when it crosses their mind. But I can't turn my phone off because I'm on call. So that means that at three in the morning, I get woken up to a texting asking if Ultium is really the right answer or should it be, uh, you know, a different Purina food. You know, (laughs) I'm like, oh, okay, I can deal with this in the morning. And, you know, I, I, like I said, I absolutely get it. I am a horse person. I am inappropriately attached to my current show horse. Uh, My office refers to me as a 12-year-old child when it comes to her, and I would totally deck her out in glitter and unicorn horns. But (laughs) I, you know, my concerns do also come up at three in the morning, but I have to come up with a way to temper that and say, all right, you know, don't text my trainer now. Maybe formulate a a thought and put it together in an email (laughs) and get that out. So, you know, we have those concerns and especially when we're talking about high level horses, you know, we need to deal with that sooner rather than later. But being aware of the fact that on the other end of that phone, there is a person who doesn't necessarily want to do this 24 seven with your horse and just being respectful of of that time that we are able to take away. Um, The other thing that I would say is Like for instance, my practice, we have more than one veterinarian and it means that we can rotate who is on call. But many times there is a, I have to see Dr. Latcher or I have to see Dr. Smith or, you know, there's that like, no, I can't see this other person. And understanding that the way that you get to see Dr. Latcher for longer is that you give me that time when I can go home and I can recharge and I can relax and I can rest. That's, that's really interesting. And I thought the one point you talked about there, it really circles back to just how how available people perceive the veterinarians to be, sort of, right? And I'm I'm curious, not that you've been in practice too too long, but I'm curious <laughs> to know uh, if we almost look at the history and you know when you you talk to trainers, they always talk about like all this next generation and how there's so much more demanding and how things were different in the good old days and everything. But I'm I'm curious to hear your perspective as a veterinarian about. When you first got into this, was there a different expectation than there is now with, you know, if you go on LinkedIn, there's so much more focus on, I think, the work-life balance than maybe people talked about 20, 40, 60 years ago. So like, do you think that 
that's factoring in the, and then as well with the technology being so readily available with text messaging and everyone carrying a smartphone with them. Yeah, when I um started uh 20 something years ago, I like to pretend it's 5 years ago, but it's really not. Um I had a cell phone. You could store seven numbers in it. Yeah. So <laughs> I knew everyone's phone number because it was in my head because I had to be able to dial it and uh I when I came to the practice, I added a computer to the truck. So that was exciting. Uh but there was you know there was a bit of a wall between us and the clients no matter what, right? Like we, we couldn't necessarily answer the phone at any time of day or night. Texting didn't exist. I'm really dating myself there. And Lord knows we couldn't be Facebook friends because that wasn't a thing. So, you know, we had this sort of imposed wall and I don't think that we necessarily appreciated what that gave us for a boundary because we didn't, you know, we didn't recognize it as a boundary at the time. And so I have, I've lived through a lot of this change. And when all of a sudden I could text with a client and be able to say yes or no really fast, you know, instead of, okay, I've got to look up their phone number. I've got to dial them. I've got, you know, I've got to do all this stuff. Oh, I can text them and just be like, yep, looks good. Great to go. Then I was super excited about that. But in the process, I eroded that border a bit, you know, and, and like I said, it's not that any of us meant to do this and it seemed like a great idea at the time. And then my first cell phone that had a camera, first off, I was like, why do I need a camera? I regret that statement every day. <laughs> but then I was like, oh, I can see the laceration. You know, I can see that it is somewhere that I'm never going to suture and it's going to be fine. And I don't need to go out and see that. And I was like, this is amazing. But now I get pictures all the time. <laughs> so again, there was sort of this slow erosion of that wall between us. And now... I, I totally get it. You know, like you, you don't give two thoughts to texting someone and no matter it, most people don't honestly give two thoughts about it, no matter what time of the day or night it is, because, you know, we just don't think about it that way. It, you know, if you erode that wall a little bit as a, a friend on Facebook or social media with someone like, like myself, or, you know, I, I follow Dr. Benoit who you've had on here. So like, but we're not really friends. Right. So <laughs> I think erosion of that line has made it difficult for us as veterinarians to then put some boundaries back in place that allow us to have some space to to work on, you know, like our mental health and our sanity. Really, really interesting. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. So we have just so much more connectivity now and everything happens so much faster. Do you think that that's actually translated into the better quality of care for the horses? Or do you feel like back when things, when you would only receive communication, maybe nine to five, Monday to Friday, was that still a decent level, assuming it wasn't an emergency? Or I guess said differently, do you think that all of this extra communication is actually contributing to any sort of change, any meaningful change outside of emergency calls for horses? I wouldn't take that communication away in any way, because one of my favorite things about being an equine veterinarian in particular is a relationship I have with my clients and more importantly, with their horses, because let's be honest, I'm in this for the horses. So I really appreciate that now I can get a real-time video of my client who was showing in a three-day event and her daughter was having trouble with show jumping. She could send me the video. I mean, I got it that evening. And she could say, do you think this is a pain issue or do you think this is a behavioral issue? And 
you know, it's fantastic to me as a veterinarian to be able to look at it and be like, oh, you know, like she took an off step there on that left front. You know, let's see if we can talk to the veterinarian there and see, you know, if we can communicate about what has happened with this horse prior, you know, like I can send that veterinarian x-rays, ultrasounds, you know, everything I have, I can get to them. So I think as far as what that level of communication has brought us for the horse, I think that's a very, very good thing. And that's, that's always what I'm in it for is can I make the world better for the horses? So, you know, there are, there are parts of it. I wouldn't take away. There's parts of it. I just like to put, you know, a little, little wall, just a tiny one, maybe like a half wall, not even a full one, just, just a little bit. Yeah. I I mean, it's fascinating. And I think those sort of communication and boundary related questions are something that any professional in this industry should be able to relate to, whether it's between them and their clients or, you know, them and their veterinarian. And so, you know, I think it's important to encourage people to sit back and say, wow, the same problem that's inflicting me, I didn't even realize I was sort of, you know, putting on my veterinarian and and maybe making their life <laughs> less enjoyable um, in the process. And, and, and again, going back to that, that episode of your podcast that I listened to, you give great advice for how people can be better clients for their veterinarians and ensure that their vet actually wants to take that emergency call at midnight versus seeing it and, you know, wanting to pull the covers back over their head. (laughs) So I definitely encourage everyone to check that out. Um, But I want to get into a little bit um, diagnostics as you are an equine veterinarian and really diagnosing this problem that we're having um, with a lack of people coming into the, into the profession. What are um, some of the specific issues that you see in equine veterinary medicine that you think are discouraging to people who are um, considering going down the road and uh, what are you hearing, seeing, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, on what the issue really is? I, I think we have a multi-pronged issue. As we all know, the horse world is extremely traditional. <laughs> we do not do change well. <laughs> and we're seeing the results of some of that work until you die lifestyle that was here. And, and, you know, that's true in a lot of different industries in, in the equine industry in particular, you know, we still have those strong ties to the agricultural, like work sun up to sun down and be thankful that you've got work. And, and I get all of that, you know, I, I come from that background, so I totally understand it, but you know, we have a group of people who've been raised in an era that I applaud tremendously, like, whoa, I can work and I can have a life. It's not an either or, you know, we had a veterinarian in this area long before I was here, but he would work 14 hour days during the week, 12 hour days on the weekends. And I'm not sure his son knew his name, you know, like that's not fair to his children, but we now have this group of people who are like, no, no, like we don't, we don't really want to do that. We want, yes, we want to work, but we also want to be able to have you know, a life and we want our children to know our names and we want to be there for first steps and, you know, first words and all of the things that happen inside a family. And the, for lack of a better term, the old guard has not taken that well. And it has been a bit of a, I did it, so you need to do it. And not just necessarily from the business side, though I think us as veterinarians can take significant responsibility for that from the business side of things. But I think it has also happened on the veteran or on the client side of things, you know, like, oh, I mean, how many of us 
But let's be honest, when you own a horse and they want to send out the new vet, you're like, ooh, no, 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 no. I don't want to send out the new vet. And by new vet, I mean the person who has been there for less than five years. <laughs> right. Like, we do not take change well. So the the combination of that has taken these these people who maybe wanted to go into equine medicine and discourage them from the get-go. Then you add that fewer people who are into horses now are into horses as a, you know, as a lifestyle from like, I, I was a traditional barn rat, you know, like my mom dropped me off at the barn in the morning. And if it was Friday, probably came and got me on Sunday at some point, <laughs> you know, like I was cleaning stalls. I was, I, I was running around without shoes. I did all of it, you know, like, and so I came to this with a love of the horse, not necessarily, you know, like looking at it as a, a career. It was, what do I want to be when I grow up? I, I can say that there are problems with that plan as well, but you know, I don't have that. I had that pushing me into the career as opposed to let me go be a veterinarian for other reasons. And when you come at it for other reasons, then looking at the salary that I was offered, the fact that I had, I almost, you almost have to do an internship as an equine veterinarian. That's changing a bit. But, you know, I, I did not get paid much for that first year of my internship and I worked ungodly hours and I would do it again in a heartbeat. I learned so much. I loved my internship, but, you know, it, it financially, <laughs> not a great plan. And more and more now, we even also have the small animal corporate practices offering tremendous salaries and signing bonuses. Well, you know, I'm a horse person, man. I got to get the new saddle, the new bridle, the new helmet that, you know, like I, I need to spend some money on my horse because that's what I do. That's a very appealing looking offer to me. And also I can be guaranteed four days a week and no on call. That's a lot. Really, really interesting points there. And uh, I think you, you paint a, a really interesting picture of some of the challenges that the, the industry is currently facing. Uh, like the one thing I, I'd be curious to know. So when I went through university, I was at university of Guelph up here in Canada and that's uh, Ontario veterinary college. And a lot of my friends were sort of running towards the uh, veterinary route, or at least that was the plan during their undergrad. But most of them were for sure already geared towards small animal. And it was really the only ones I found that were geared towards large animal and including equine were sort of those like farm kids who had already had quite a strong background in it, right? They were already comfortable dealing with ant with larger animals. They were already comfortable with a little bit of that lifestyle. And as the world becomes more and more sort of urban areas and we're losing some of those country uh, type places, like do you feel like we're also just pulling from such a small sample size almost now, like of people who are comfortable with large animals and who are comfortable dealing with horses that we're sort of fighting a battle with just fewer and fewer people who we could even select for it. Absolutely. I, I think we see that for sure. And then you add the, you know, sort of the small animal bias that already exists in vet school. And, you know, there is a fear factor to horses, right? Like you're looking at a, a 12, 1400 pound animal that if you don't understand that they interact with us as a prey species, as opposed to dogs and cats who interact like we do, then, you know, certainly they're, they can be very intimidating. I think there's some things that, that we as veterinarians and as horse people can do, you know, welcoming people in and really trying to take young people and show them what horses are and, and really how to interact with them. But absolutely, we have a, a certain 
we have a definite decrease in the pool of applicants who are even looking at doing large animal, period. End of story. Yeah, I know for those of you uh, listening who don't know, I know, Dr. Latcher, that you're also involved on the admission side um, for some for uh, a vet school. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about sort of what what you're seeing in applications and sort of who's be who is passing the bar and being admitted um, from, you know, that that point in the process before they're even making the choice between a uh, small animal and large animal? There's. On the admission side, there's definitely a bias. You, you don't have to have amazing grades. You know, you don't have to be a 4.0, but you, you need to have decent grades. And so there is a bias away from the the student who had to work significant hours in undergrad. And so maybe that pulled away from their GPA. You know, there's just, at, at least the the university that I'm part of for sure, I would say there is a bias towards the the grades as opposed to the the content, and we we are working hard to adjust that. But it's it's turning the Queen Mary, you know. It is not a quick process to adjust anything, and then add academia into it, and it's a slower process. But you know, there's just even the kids that apply. Like and we look at, I think they haven't given us the numbers yet for this year. That'll be in a meeting coming up. But you know, last year was like 800 applications. We went through at, at this university, we go through a lot of those. We look at like 650, 700 of those applications. We actually, somebody puts eyes on and looks at them. And I will tell you that 80 to 90% of the ones that I went through were, they, they want to do small animal, you know, like equine, large animal. It isn't even on their radar and it's, they have no experience with it at all at any point in their life. So, you know, maybe they volunteered once at, some retirement home for horses or, you know, like they found a way to, to be able to put it on their vet school resume, but they didn't spend any meaningful time around large animals in any way. And the, the large, you know, the cattle industry is experiencing this as well. So it's, it's definitely an issue and it's not an easy one to solve or we'd all have miracle solutions for sure. (laughs) Um, And those are really interesting uh, stats, Dr. Latcher. And the one thing that, I always think about as well. I think that anyone who's going the medical route, whether it's human or veterinary medicine, like I think that they tend to be quite ambitious and curious individuals and just really want to do what's best for their patients. Um, my nine to five job, I'm involved with like uh, a lot of individuals who are at the university of Toronto's department of surgery. And like you, you see in, in that environment, there's so much opportunity for continuing education and, I feel like on the human side, like that's a little bit more entrenched perhaps than it is on the equine side. Like, can you speak a little bit about how just the lifestyle that you have to live to, to run your practice maybe can take away from some continuing education opportunities and some of that collaborative opportunity, or maybe it isn't an issue, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. It's currently a pretty giant issue for me, actually. Um, And part of it is that, you know, like this year we, in an effort to try to to get some space to breathe, we were waiting on a vet to graduate so that we could bring her on. She came on uh, mid-July. We have a very intensive mentorship process. So I have been mentoring her um, for the past two months, like one-on-one right now. We've just started turning her loose for some time on her own. And 
you know, like it's funny when they come out of vet school, like she has all the skills. She's a great veterinarian. We have to work on all the the other stuff. I mean, one of them being like, how do you put medical records into our computer system? That's different. You know, it's all the things that you didn't think you'd be worried about when you were in vet school. When you get out, you're like, oh my Lord, it's all this stuff. So, you know, I've been mentoring that one. Then we had one of our veterinarians, we lost to small animal medicine for all of the reasons I outlined. And so, you know, we were waiting for another one. We got another one hired. I am so thankful for that. But anyway, we got another one hired. And so now I'm onboarding another one. But in the process, you know, we were basically down two veterinarians. So trying to cover all of the on-call, you know, do the things that we need to do to meet our clients' needs means that I was working I'll, you know, I got, I was working all the time basically. And I was on call all the time too, because the joy of being the owner of the practice is that you're the one who gets to pick up the slack. So, but it also makes it extremely difficult to figure out how do I get away for a period of time in order to do continuing education. And there's been some great companies out there that have come up with some, some online options that we can do. And, and I've done a few of those, you know, it's, it's also just hard they were online lectures at seven o'clock at night, which is fantastic. I don't know how the the West Coasters do it because it's all you know seven o'clock Eastern time. But anyway, the then I'm you know sitting down trying to figure out like where we are, what are we doing. One of them was very in depth anatomy, which was amazing, but my phone rings and I have to go out on a call. So you know I had to take that time to get myself into the mindset to be in that learning mindset to be really focused because it was very in-depth. It was, it was wonderful stuff. Actually, it was with Dr. Benoit, but I, you know, I had to get into that mindset. I got yanked out of it. Now I got to figure out when can I get back in it so that I can watch the, you know, the, the replay of it, but we all know that doesn't go well. So, you know, there's, there's opportunities out there, but as there are fewer and fewer of us, it gets harder and harder to figure out how you can carve that time out to go do it. Yeah. Those are all, you know, really important points. And um, it's so interesting. Tim, too, to hear, you know, you talk about the difference between what you see on the human side versus what's happening on the veterinary side. And, you know, maybe there's, there's lessons for us to learn there. Um, so we've identified the problem. We've diagnosed it. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about um, the future, uh, assuming uh, we can come up with some really good ideas to solve this problem and that it doesn't continue to go the way that it's going. Um, any, any thoughts or brilliant ideas on, on what, um, especially like what what we can be doing as uh, members of the sport horse community, as equestrians, as um, you know, people who love their vets. What are what are some of the solutions that um, that you've thought of that that you think we should all be aware of? Well, one of the things we talk about is before you contact your veterinarian, and I encourage you to. You know, one of our things is that you should have a great relationship with your veterinarian, and I truly mean that. But before you contact me. Take a second and decide, could this be an email? <laughs> so if it could be an email, go ahead and email me. You know, if if it is an emergency, none of us mind seeing a true emergency, but making sure that your veterinarian is part of your team that takes care of your horse, as opposed to the person you call periodically is key. You know, like the the clients that I am, I'm there for, like, it, it doesn't matter what I am there. I am part of their vaccines. You know, I, I help them decide what vaccine plan are we going to go on. We discuss medications. You know, sure, they Google stuff. I don't have any problem with Googling stuff. I Google stuff all day long. I don't know how I survived before Google. I went to vet school pre-Google. That was hard. <laughs> so, 
you know, I don't mind it, but I have to be a part of the conversation before you're applying the Dr. Smith's wonder salve to your horse's leg. And then we're going to go to a horse show next week. And I have to tell you, there's an illegal medication in that. You can't go to that horse show, you know, or I could have fixed the problem last week, but now we're in big, big, big trouble. So I think making sure that you use your veterinarian for the amazing resource they are. You know, we, we learn a very broad base of things in school. And once we're out, we learn even more and we have a ton of resources. You know, like I may not know the answer, but the chances are good. I have probably asked that same question. And so I know the best person to send you to, to say, oh, you have a feed question. Let me call Dr. Vineyard from Purina. Oh, we have a, you know, a significant movement problem going on that is not necessarily a lameness. Let me see what I can do to find you like a Dr. Benoit. You know, we have those relationships. And so we can help you be the best person you can for your horse. So I think having that, you know, like I said, making sure that it's not texting me at two in the morning to tell me that you have eggs for sale, because that has certainly happened. And <laughs> it's it's not good. <laughs> I will not be buying your eggs at two in the morning. So, you know, making sure that you you think about like the person on the other end of that phone for just a moment. And like I said, if it's an emergency None of us ever mind going. Where we have the issue is your horse has been sick for four or five days, and now you're calling us. By the way, you're probably doing that at 9 o'clock at night, and the horse has been sick since like 10 a.m. on Tuesday. <laughs> so, you know, that's those are great ways to to not have us be your, your best friend at 2 in the morning. So, you know, I think from a veterinarian standpoint, applying some of those, from uh, where to find new ones, I, you know, I try to set up my practice and, you know, anything around me with the horses where if I see a kid who's interested in any way, I'm going to try to foster that, that love of the horse. And what can I do to show you that it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to have Olympic goals. Like, let's just show you how to have fun with horses. Let's show you how to be around farm animals. Let's show you kind of what this can be so that you can start getting the base of, of what it means to be around animals and caring for them and helping them live their best lives. So we do that. You know, we try to do it with local high school kids for sure. We do a ton of stuff with the undergrads, bringing them in. And then in our practice, we just try to set up a really great practice environment where we all look to learn from each other, collaborate with each other, and uh, mostly have fun and uh, the really epic GIF battles that we have on our group text chat. It's very important. <laughs> awesome. Perfect. Well, like it... I feel like the podcast, you know, we started out highlighting a lot of the challenges, which I think can sometimes seem a little bit overwhelming and maybe depressing at times. But I think, as you say, right, there's also opportunities. And I think that there are things that can be done to hopefully address this issue and to maybe foster some some new people for coming in. Just as you say, like, I love your idea about reaching out to the high schools, like reaching out with, reaching out to the undergrads and sort of getting them on board, getting them involved. Because I think there probably is a community of people out there who would love to do it. It's just maybe they've never grown up around horses and they, they haven't been exposed to that. And it's such a daunting thing, right. To think about like, how do I make this my career? So like in a, in a safe environment, an, an open environment, getting them in and showing them some of that stuff. I think it's really, really valuable. Um, so that brings us towards the 
end of our discussion, like really, really interesting. We always finish off with one question that's uh, a little bit unique to our podcast. But if you could talk directly to a horse and you could have them understand you, what would you love to tell horses? I would really like to tell them how much they mean to me. Like I, I just love what they do for us, what they give to us, you know, and the fact that we can ask the craziest things and they say, all right, I'm in, let's go. Awesome. I, I was wondering if you were going to say to uh, try to take the holidays off from being sick. But, uh... <laughs> I can say that too, if you'd like to edit that one in as the answer, but they'll never listen to that one. <laughs> They're like, oh, is it Christmas? Are you sitting down for dinner? I feel a little ill. <laughs> Although I will throw in uh, one of one of the tips that you uh, gave for people to make your vet your friend is always lead with food. Um, so if you are going to call your vet out in the middle of Christmas dinner, you better have some good cookies waiting. We are an extremely food motivated group. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who isn't right? Yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for, um, for joining us and sharing all of your, um, you know, brilliant perspective and, and advice for us. And, um, we really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. So a really, really fascinating discussion with Dr. Erica Latcher there. I think that it's it's a topic that more and more we're, we're hearing it coming up. It's it's really important. It's not just riders and owners talking about it and veterinarians talking about it. Like we're hearing a lot of the farm, uh, pharmaceutical companies identifying this issue. A lot of the, the makers of medical devices talking about uh, the limitations they're noticing and who is buying product and, and sort of the, the market shrinking a little bit just because there aren't that many people out there getting into equine veterinary medicine. Uh, and it raises really important points about access to care for horses. I think that everyone in our community, we're in it because we love horses, right? And we want to give them the best care that we can. Uh, and I think in a lot of places, as equine veterinarians sort of disappear as there just aren't that many going into it anymore. And the, the old guard as they retire, uh, I could see a lot of communities, especially outside of like the Floridas and Californias that are so uh, pop, like such a, have, have a high population of horses, but those other, in, uh, other places in the world that are a little uh, less populated with horses, like there may just not be any equine veterinarians there, um, which creates massive issues. So either people need to ship the horses further to get treated, which, isn't ideal and especially in emergency situations or you need to start flying veterinarians in which also has its its challenges as well so it's a really really important topic really really fascinating to hear the points from today's episode yeah i'm really excited to continue this conversation you know dr latcher brought up a lot of really important points from her perspective as to you know sort of the lack of of motivation for people to get into um, equine veterinary medicine um the lack of access to horses for the general public in general that would maybe um you know spark a spark a light for somebody uh that this could be a career path for them and also the both the financial and um time related pressures, um, you know, that come with choosing this path for your career, um, and how that's, you know, having an impact on people who are, who are making the choice of maybe whether or not to go to vet school or then whether to go into small animal medicine versus large animal medicine. Um, so I'm really looking forward to continuing this conversation. It's obviously one that's really important that we all need to care about. And I also think it's something that is an 
going to take an industry-wide approach. I don't think it's just a, a simple fix. Um, so I, I hope that we can, you know, together with Dr. Latcher and some of our other speakers over the coming um, episodes, come up with some ideas um, and hopefully inspire people in the industry to, to get involved and, and try and work towards addressing this issue. With that, uh, you can find the links to today's guests and the show notes at www.sporthorsepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Sport Horse Series. And of course, um, if you want to, if you like what we do, you like our episodes, you like what we talk about, and you want to help other people find it too, definitely uh, like and review the podcast on whatever app you're using to listen to it today. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Just go to the App Store and search for Horse Radio Network. And with that, here's to keeping your sport horse happy and healthy.